0: Hey everyone before we kick off with today's episode I want to talk to you about unfold a three-month journey to your well-being. imagine a life where you're not always running against the clock and what if there was a path to well-being designed with just you in mind We want to introduce to you Unfold, a transformative three-month program for you to reliably feel better. Unfold integrates unique tools like the work of Byron Katie, non-sleep deep rest practices and integral coaching, all carefully woven together to guide you towards self-discovery and holistic well-being. With a combination of weekly one-on-one meetings, guided relaxations and a carefully designed individual roadmap, Unfold can help you gain clarity, personal growth and a deeper understanding of yourself. Bring your stress, your heartache, finances, relationships and anything you feel is keeping you from feeling free and let it unfold in the direction of well-being. Unfold combines the inner work that is required for change with the deep rest that our nervous systems crave. As a listener of our podcast you can get a 15% discount plus you can also book a 30 minute free trial to get a taste of this program's approach. So if you're ready to say hello to a more balanced life head over to www.christinabonnet.com the website address will be right below in the show notes. Don't miss out on this opportunity to transform your life. Okay on with the show.
1: It was. It was apparently it was Batman Day on Saturday. Oh yeah. Apparently it's an international yeah. bat. No, this isn't a bit. Steve's like, no, I can see in the face. He thinks this is a bit. There's no bit. I, I've heard of Batman Day. Did we? Apparently it was Batman we'll Day. Cake?
0: I've tried to look up why it was. No reason. I couldn't I sleep on Batman Eve. I, <laughs> I I was so excited for the Batman Santa mm-hmm. to come down my chimney and deliver me presents under my Batman tree. Um, woke up at 5am, ran into my parents room and said has Batman claws?" I've changed his name been here? And they were like, yep. And then I go downstairs, I go to the Batman <laughs> tree have a Batman dinner yeah. ha- <laughs> classic Batman dinner classic
2: batman dinner because <laughs> i actually celebrated batman day with style lucas the batman day changes date every year yeah i know i don't what's the purpose I then then what's no, the no. what's the thing you know there's a question mark isn't there
1: yeah well
2: the kind of question mark that the riddler might use oh, you know what I mean? Oh, oh. as
1: performed by jim carrey
2: yeah why not yeah yeah hello welcome to what is high music, music podcast about music we are a podcast that focuses on discographies. In their entirety, and we're doing deep dives on one artist at a time. You join us for season six, which is called Are We Enjoying This? A critical analysis of the history, cultural impact of music of REM. We're going through their entire career, album by album, track by track. We're asking questions like, does context matter when you're listening to music? Does knowing the history of an artist affect your appreciation of their output? And this season, we're of course asking, are we enjoying this? And to be clear, we're asking, are we enjoying this in regards to the band R.E.M., not are we enjoying this in regards to this, the sixth season of our podcast, which is called Are We Enjoying This, and which you may or may not be enjoying. I'm Adam Scott Glasspool. I'm a big music nerd. Big fan of R.E.M. Uh, With me, as always, are two of my very closest friends. The first is someone who is not a huge music nerd, is maybe the least knowledgeable on music in general out of the three of us, and is just learning through this podcast how to apply critical thought onto why he likes or dislikes something, and whether that means it's good or not. It is, of course, Lucas Way. That's me. And we also have someone... Between those two things, it's Steve Murphy. Where is she? (laughs) Batman with a bit of indigestion. (coughs) Oh,
0: sorry. Where is
2: she? (laughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Where is she? Uh, Welcome (laughs) back to the the podcast, Steve and Lucas. How are you? Feels like a little bit of a while since
0: we've done an album episode. Is it actually like a week? No, since an album episode, the last one would have been Lauren Hill's second Oh yeah, MTV Unplugged and two And that was 2, kind of not, not an really, album, no, really. No, so maybe the last yeah. one was
2: Miseducation, maybe?
1: Although, yeah. as far as people are listening, oh no, wait, no, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant.
2: No, the people aren't listening to this now. <laughs> oh, yeah, <right. laughs> Uh On this podcast, which is not live, we're exploring the entire discography... Of R.E.M. It's very difficult in that intro to not call them R.E.M., by the way. It sounded like a little child. R.E.M. In the last couple of episodes, we have... What have we done? We've introduced our knowledge of the band. We explored how they formed. We talked about their early days. We went track by track on their first EP, Chronic Town. And I call it the first EP. It's their only EP. Uh, Today, we will explore the making of the context surrounding, our feelings on, their debut album, Murmur. Who remembers exactly where we left off?
0: Don't ask me questions like that. They finished their EP, did quite well, toured uh, loads, and fucking made an album, mate. And I guess that's well, what we haven't to got to the made an album bit
2: yet. Wow! Are going to get asked to make
1: much,
0: an album? Wasn't there? A yeah, thing, you can see they yeah. got
1: signed. There was a lot of buzz to get them signed. Wasn't there like some kind of bidding war? Am I imagining that? Did something happen? Why
0: are you whispering?
2: By the way, is this like a secret? Did something, something? happen? You were complaining about your waveforms being so small before we started recording. Is it because you whisper everything that you're what? saying? Maybe why is, my why is my microphone so quiet? Sean Harris! Sean Harris! <laughs> Wasn't there There's nothing Yeah, you kind of there was a bit of a bidding war where like they turned down a major label to go and I mean IRS kind of are a major label, but they're a cooler, more independent major label, even though they're owned by a bigger you know, major label. But whatever. You don't have to add loads to what Steve said to be a bang on the money, really. Chronic Town came out, big hit. Top five on college radio for three months, 20,000 copies sold, voted second best EP of the year by Village Voice. There was an article about the band and the EP in Rolling Stone magazine. And remember, Rolling Stone magazine in 1982 was like the cultural centre of music criticism, probably.
1: It was like what the NME is today.
2: No, it's like, it's like the enemy yeah. was, <laughs> to, like, in the 90s, probably. That's probably a, a good way of putting it. But only here, because I don't think the enemy really translates uh, to other countries.
1: And also, in 90s, wasn't it, probably at its peak in, like, 2000s?
2: Britpop, my guy. Britpop. We, you know we love to mention Britpop. Um, but it's, you know, Rolling Stone magazine, it's where people got music news, uh, music news, and Muse. obviously... Yep. Yes, yeah, it did. Uh, <laughs> pre-internet. Pre-internet. Pre-discussion forum. And MTV had only been broadcasting for a year. At the Breer. Point. Yeah, sure. <laughs> broadcasting for a year. Bre- Breer. Um, <laughs> print, <laughs> print magazines, very much the dominant way of expanding your interaction with the music that you were listening to. So having your band written about in Rolling Stone, we understand... What a big deal that is, right? We
0: understand that? That's a, that's a big deal. Okay, good. Okay, good. We're on board.
2: Yeah. Um, the band, though, kept chugging on. They basically lived on the road, playing show after show after show, because that's the thing that they loved doing the most. Uh, it wasn't all plain sailing. It's classic tour stories, you know? There was a gig where they were opening for... Are you going to say Tories? Mm -hmm. is is that what you wanted to interrupt for tour stories no stopping
0: myself saying it i did it i did it physically which interrupted you yeah you held
2: up a little finger (laughs) wag and i was like i know what he's i know what he means yeah um there was a gig, right, where they were opening for uh, exotic dancers in a strip club.
0: Uh, and oh, when the promoter... is that the band name of the band? band? Yeah, what, what are we talking no, about? No, 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 no. They were just... Uh, it is now. You know, Do you want to join yeah, the okay. band? We're called Exotics <laughs> Dancers in a Strip Club. <laughs> That's
2: not bad. Not, it sounded like 80s New Wave, or something. it? does, it? yeah, we are um, that, actually. When the, I, I don't know what the promoter thought he was booking, but when he saw them, uh, he offered them their $500 fee not to perform. Oh. which was a bit of a result because I think the crowd would have just demolished them. Um, there was a gig where only five people turned up so instead of playing they took them all to dinner instead. Lovely. Must have been, that must have been quite nice. Yeah. Um, uh, less nice, they played at a military base where someone passed them a note that said, play another song like that and die, faggot. So that's yeah. less nice bit, than the other. A bit less you know, nice than going to less dinner. Less nice than going yeah. to dinner with R.E.M. Yeah. Yes. Um, and of course, guys, classic tour hijinks like hi-jinks. going to, to no, oh, we can't. Okay, we, we need to quit. We need to stop this doing it for the whole episode because we've got episode. stuff to do. No, we've God, got we we must we've got must stuff stop. to do. We must be it's, it's such a long episode. <laughs> uh, episode <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, they they do things like go to people's after parties at. Uh, people's houses and steal food just so they had something to eat the next day. Uh, They left their manager a hundred miles behind them
0: and had to turn back to get him. Uh, Yeah, stuff like that. It's interesting how they had to go to parties to um, steal food so they got something to eat, but they'd quite happily take out five strangers for dinner. I think they haven't got their priorities straight, that silly young rock band. Like silly buggers, I think what they're doing. Um, But also what
2: they're doing while they're on tour is writing more and more songs, and kind of maturing their sound. Um, have, have we talked about how they write songs?
0: I'm, I'm going to go and assume that that uh, Stipe comes in at the end. Uh, no, they, they, no. That's,
2: that's what I thought you might think. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's a little different to most of the bands that we've covered so far. If we stick strictly to the bands, the Manics, lyrics first, lyrics given to a different person who then writes the music, but also sings the lyrics. Bit of a weird way of doing it. Muse, music first, with the lyrics and vocals added towards the end of the process, with the primary songwriter kind of overseeing that entire process. That sounds right, doesn't it, Lucas? Yeah, and the
1: lyrics are, you know...
2: An afterthought. Yeah, let's put it that way. Well, they're not, though. Um, They're not an afterthought. To them, they're a thought, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, not a great thought. Uh, Radiohead... Everyone involved in the writing process, but the a lot of the time, full songs come from one guy, Tom York, although they also work in like snippets and, and build songs together. REM is maybe the closest to Radiohead, except Michael Stipe is kind of a wild card. Um, the musical song ideas come from any of what I think we should call the players, uh, which is... Uh, whose names are, of course... Bill Berry. Oh, I was gonna Peter do Buck, it. Mike Mills. Don't worry, I've got you covered, Lucas. Oh, I was Don't gonna worry. give it a try. I had Bill <laughs> <They> all, Berry. <laughs> you did in the last episode. You called him Bim Bop Bim Bill Berry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't
0: have, have you? I didn't have, have you already Mills. forgotten what he said for the other ones? Peter Buck.
2: Um, Mike Mills. Oh, They're no. all <laughs> great uh like warm-up you know, Bill, Berry, Peter, Buck, yeah. Mike, Mills. You <laughs> oh, um, peaked on the They all contribute to that process to like varying degrees depending on the song. Stipe contributes from the beginning of that process and he has some ideas on how things should sound, but he doesn't play an instrument. He will just instantly start working on melodies and lyrics. So the musical parts are informed by those melodies. You can obviously hear that in the bass, for instance. But it's not a case of... Songs are worked on, given to Michael, and then he just slaps a vocal melody on top of it. You know, it's all woven in from the beginning of the process. I mean, that sounds like the correct way to
1: do things. It's weird the idea that a song is written and then you go put some lyrics over that. Because to a lot of people, put the main thing they'll hear over that. So I mean, like people like the vocal melody is often the thing that people most follow on a song, and the fact that that's often like put in to fit the music that's already been written is a bit odd, isn't
2: it? Well, at this point in the eighties, I think. traditionally songwriters like they're kind of written by one person right it's a someone with a guitar and a voice and then the arrangement is kind of secondary that typically is is what happens the song is written and then the arrangement comes up just Um, one guy and a guitar you know just one guy and a guitar you know man that's all you need that's that's rock and roll
0: work living on a dream working on a beat farm Yeah. Or something? Yeah, That's yeah. Okay. working on a beat farm. <laughs> I'm, you, I'm, you, I'm getting you, one going. Oh, this is a good song.
2: Living okay. on a dream. Living on a beat farm. Living on a dream. Working on a beat it's farm. Working called. on a beat farm. Working on a beat farm. Living on a dream.
0: <laughs> living is working. Working is living. On a- <laughs> okay, so you are really muddying the waters
2: between what living and working actually constitutes. Exactly. Yeah. So he is dreaming. Of a beat farm? Was he dreaming at any point? Dreaming no, he was not, not of a beet farm. He was, <laughs> he was living and working.
0: Now he's dreaming.
2: Dreaming of my work.
0: Okay, <laughs> I can't remember what it was anymore. So living just splice that together, like that. put a drum machine Doesn't to that. it. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it. We've done it. And that is the first um, song
1: of exotic dancers
2: in the <laughs> night in the strip club. In yeah. The strip club. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Uh, the internet. Anyway, look. Shut up. REM. Uh, it's a full-on collaboration with a slight division of labour. That does actually change at some point, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. The crucial thing is, and we've mentioned this before, everything had to be unanimous. All four members had veto power, and that was how they operated for business decisions as well as creative decisions. Very rare for a band in those days. Also quite rare, equal songwriting credits. Most bands... One or a couple of primary songwriters are credited for songwriting, and therefore they are paid the publishing royalties. And all the other members of the band, they don't receive credit or the royalty payments. They get paid as musicians and not as writers. Um, which in loads of bands over the years has led to power imbalances, you know? What's it, I'm trying to now think of what it's
1: been in the various bands we've covered. Muse are generally it's credited as Muse. It's occasionally Matt mm-hmm. Bellamy. Very occasionally. Yep. What's Radiohead?
2: All five. That, but I have to say, all of the bands that we've covered following the R.E.M. playbook. Okay. The, the R.E.M., like, like that was fairly rare in, in the R.E.M. days. Um, you'd have, a, like, a primary songwriter in a band, and then everybody else was just kind of the band. Um, re- regardless of the level of contribution, the songwriting credit was always Buck, Barry, Mills, Stipe, with all four of them sharing equal credit, equal money. That's how the songs were written in the early 80s R.E.M., And they were constantly writing them. There were so many songs in contention for Chronic Town, Mm -hmm. and they were still writing more as they toured in support of Chronic Town. Um, When we did the the commentary uh, of one of their nineteen eighty two shows last week, like fifty percent of the set was new songs, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, stuff we hadn't heard. Yeah, Um, which meant it's time. It's time. It's time. The success of the EP. It is time. It's time to make that that debut album. Now the record label. IRS, they wanted them to try Stephen Hague as a producer. Okay, Stephen Hague. Eventually, he goes on to very successfully produce New Order, Pet Shop Boys. He worked with Manic Street Preachers uh, a little bit on those very shiny mixes that didn't make everything must go. Do you remember going through those on our? on our sister show. Do you remember that very shiny mix of uh, Australia that oh, had yeah. hand claps in it? Yeah. That's Stephen Haig. Okay. Yeah. Um, but at that this point in 1980, in 1980, it must be in 1982, he's, kind of, he's untested. And so the band do a session with him in Atlanta because they're willing to try anything once and they select the most accessible of their new songs, which is a song called Catapult. This session, not necessarily what the band was used to, it was rigid, uh, and they did not have the freedom that they had had with Mitch Easter for Chronic Town. Um, the I think the classic studio setup was probably there. Um, I guess I guess firstly, let's remember there are no computers uh, in recording studios yet. That will probably help you. Everything is recorded to tape. Yeah. Um, and then present in the control room would have been a record label executive or like a representative, an engineer, a producer, maybe another engineer, and a band and that that was there was like a certain way that things were done for new artists around that time and part of that was recording to a click track over and over and over again until everything was note perfect uh however in this instance by the time that the band rem got to note perfect they were fed up with the song and all of the emotion had been removed from their performance and i think you see that in a lot of bands actually where they're always chasing note perfect things at the expense of like the inherent emotion of, of the songs that they're performing, you know?
0: It's like when you hear an earlier, uh, an EP version of a song. It happens to be one well on this, actually. You, you hear an earlier version of the song and you really like it. It's on an EP or something. And then it's like, yeah, now here's the album version of it. And it sounds weird. And it sounds yeah, yeah. like just too clean. I don't know how to put it. Uh, it interestingly sort of happens here. Kind of, uh, yeah. yeah.
2: Although I think that's a very, that is not a byproduct of something. That's a very deliberate decision. I yeah. think. I think. I think. Also it also happens as a, as a byproduct. Yeah. And then um, there's the
0: familiarity, I know the old one. This sounds weird because it's just a bit different. I suppose that um, is also true. Yeah.
2: Um. But that's what they were faced with, rather than that process where they recorded Chronic Town. Because on Chronic Town, they played a few takes live without a click track then selected the songs based on whether or not you could feel the emotion of the performance or, or they selected the song that best communicated the ideas behind the song. And they felt that they lost that in this production of, of Catapult that they were doing with Stephen Haig. And then Stephen Haig took the tapes to Boston to mix. And while he was doing that, added loads of overdubs of synths okay. without any kind of, import, any, any kind of input from the band. And the band was horrified, distraught... Uh, Inconsolable, Uh, Peter Buck later said about it, Steve has done some great production work for bands that are not like us. It was not a pleasant experience. Um, There would have also been like, there's a level of interference from IRS there as well, because... Because there always would be for new signings, you know, they'd only they'd literally just signed them less than a year ago. That I think there was a push to be more accessible and to keep an eye on how a record would sell, and I think that continued even when REM turned back to IRS and said, "We're not going to work with Stephen Hague. We want to work with Mitch Easter again." Um, And IRS allowed them to do the same thing with Stephen Hague. They did like a tryout session with Mitch Easter, who also brought in his more experienced uh, producing and mixing friend, Don Dixon, who helped make the leap from 16 track to 24
0: track mixing desk. That is a scotch drinking guy, isn't it? Don Dixon. Don Dixon. (laughs) I only work on 24 a track. He's just following
1: the REM thing of having an alliterative name.
0: Yeah, he is a superhero at night. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, um, yeah, yeah. Batman. Batman.
2: So Mitch Easter and Don Dixon work on the session. Don Dixon has some interesting stuff to say about the band in this period, I think. Uh, Here's a quote from him. I think we understood things about the band that the record company didn't. We understood that the combination of their limitations as musicians was a big part of the sound. So you don't just throw those out. It was important for the band to understand that we very much liked what they were doing and we wanted to preserve that over the record company's dead body. So it's 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 a nice thing to hear from a, a producer, I think. They recorded the song Pilgrimage over two days in January 1983, and it's the version that ends up on the album. So they must have liked it. They did a good job. They take it to IRS, who then give the go-ahead to make the whole album with Easter and Dixon. Um, that is probably an important turning point in the REM story, just that little decision, or at least the IRS years of the story, because they're allowing the artistic notion to take precedence over accessibility and financial return, you know? Yeah,
0: which is a gamble for a very new band, right? That surely they want it to be as clean as possible. Uh Although,
2: uh, Jay Boberg, head of IRS, did have a little chat with Mitch Easter and Don Dixon before the full sessions began, just to be like, guys, remember, this needs to be somewhat accessible, you know, (laughs) like somewhat commercial, and it can't be purely avant-garde you have to kind of rein them in a little bit. Um, and they began recording at Reflection Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, in January 1983. Um, I think as the sessions began, and I, I think you can hear this on the album. We're not going to talk about the album just yet, but I think you can hear it. It became clear that they wanted to be a bit of a different band. Um, I, I think we'll pick up on this like as we do the track-by-track but I think there's more subtlety, there's fewer harsh edges. They spent a lot of time with acoustic guitars. Peter Buck had never played an acoustic guitar before this session, uh, rather than those kind of spiky electric guitars that you hear on Chronic Town. Um, not everything changed. Michael Stipe still sang completely obscured from view and, like, cryptically. He he recorded in a stairwell outside the control room of the studio. Um, and it was Dixon that noticed Mike Mills' harmonies Actually, grew into secondary melodies almost kind of cutting across Stipe and encouraged them to make more of that. And then he also mixed the harmonies quite high. Um, oh, so
1: those aren't Stipe just doing a second go?
2: Some of them are. There's a couple of songs where you can hear that it's clearly Stipe, but most of the time it's Mike Mills and uh, Bill Berry. That's Bit, cool. Bob, Bim, Bill Berry, and himself. <laughs> and those are, of course, the drummer and the bassist. Exactly, yes. But which is which? Mike Mills is the drummer. No, that's <laughs> a shame, isn't it? <laughs> It's a shame. The other thing that, uh, that Don Dixon noticed was that he wasn't really doing loads of production work. Um, the band had so many of their arrangements like locked in and enough supplementary ideas to go along with them that they were essentially just recording the band as they saw the songs. Uh, a big part of what Dixon and Easter did was adding like atmosphere to the songs, I think is a quote I saw from one of them. Uh, REM just had an instinct on what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. And their, their instinct was to record the album via a process of negation. Um, after their experience with Stephen Haig, they focused on all of the things that they didn't want to do. So no click tracks, no rock cliches, no guitar solos. Uh, which they break the rule on one song. Um, No Synths, uh, which at the point, uh, you know, very popular in mainstream rock music. Um, Bill Berry, the drummer, insisted on recording his drums uh, in a drum booth, uh, which was quite an out-of-date technique at that time. Uh, And they purposefully resisted musical suggestions that they deemed, quote, too odd, right? There's not really much more specificity about that, but that's what they resisted. They wanted the record to have a uh, a classic or kind of timeless feel, is what they said. Mostly, uh, a very happy collaboration between the producers and the band. Not all happy days. Some tensions. We'll get into that in the track by track. Uh, the band felt very positively about Easter and Dixon because they felt that they shielded them from any of the outside influences or the pressure to be commercial. So when we talked about Jay, Jay Boberg going come on guys you need this to be accessible. That never reached the band. Yeah. The the producers sucked that up and like right okay we 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 will manage this instead of putting that uh, demand on the band. Um, it took them a month to record that for the bands that we've covered, right? That's, that's, that's like so no short, time isn't at it? all. Yeah, <laughs> like it's not long.
1: That's really long. Really long, because the album the album's like less than an hour long. That's true.
0: Yeah. So, it, oh, actually, that's a good point. It should have taken at least an hour.
1: <laughs> so, forty-five <laughs> minutes to
0: record it, quarter of an hour to mix it and master it. Done. Well, no, not that much. But I mean, you know, it is
1: less than an hour long. So, a month is way longer than the length of the album.
2: That's true. Yeah, that is true. In rainbows is forty-five minutes long, and it took them three years. And that's why it's that's shit. Lazy Crazy shit album. We should judge all albums
0: by, uh, like work to output ratio hold on this is one of the <laughs> in rainbows was the, one of the first albums that was kind of released sort of out onto the internet for the page you like all that kind of stuff maybe it just and it, what year was it to, maybe their internet was a bit slow it took a couple of years to upload maybe it was that maybe, it was maybe that. you're
2: right maybe they finished it in 2005 yeah and the next two years were just all uploads buffering <laughs> It took them a month to record. That, listen to this though; it took them a month to record, and they had time left at the end to record live takes of some newer songs that they'd been working on during live sets oh, as right. like demos. And they recorded some live covers for B
0: sides. Um, I was going to say they they probably didn't just record these tracks, right? They would have recorded. Yeah, I think I think they think they did. Yeah, I think they probably did. That's surprising. Most first albums, it's like
1: we got loads of stuff, record it all, and then I was and gonna then.
0: Say, especially you said they had a ton of material. They must have really known what they wanted going in. The
2: only thing I can really track down in terms of sessions, I think they might have attempted a version of Seven Chinese Brothers, uh, which is on the next album. I was going to
1: say, is that something we're supposed to understand? Like, yeah,
2: you just no, said some no, words there. Yeah. There's going to be a bunch of stuff I'm going to say that you're not going to understand, and it's just for me and the listeners, really. It's just a little something for Daddy. Uh, <laughs> it cost $28,000 Uh, and the mood was good. Peter Buck said, I remember thinking, God, I can't wait till everyone hears this, because it was different. It didn't sound like our other stuff, it didn't sound like us live, and it didn't sound like anything else that was coming out. Uh, And Murmur is released on April the 12th, 1983 in the US, and August the 29th, 1983 in the UK. So the US release is just eight months after Chronic Town. It's 12 tracks and 44 minutes. Good That's length. A, good length. It's a, good, a good length. That is, that is an album. Swift. It's a swift little album. It goes quite yeah. swiftly. It does, it does. Yeah. It, we, we've had 45 minute albums before and they've been like 10 tracks. 12 tracks, it's a lot of variety, a lot of new stuff in the space of, of, of 45 minutes. Um, it's produced by Mitch Easter and Don Dixon. The artwork is by Carl Grasso, Anne Kinney, and Sandra Lee Phipps, with heavy input from the band, particularly Michael Stipe, who is, of course, also a visual artist. It's what he studied at university. The artwork, I don't know if you've seen it. Feel yeah. free to pull it up. Uh, it's kind of an abstract photo on first glance, I think. I don't think I've ever really considered it. It's kind of dark and mysterious. It's perhaps a little gothic. Um, it's, a, it's like a forest with a bunch of like overgrown weeds. Yeah, so that's a very specific weed. Uh, it's a noxious weed called kudzu, uh, which grows in the southern states of the US. Can I smoke Especially Georgia. It? No. Oh. Uh, well, you, probably could, you could, but, but, but instant I, yeah, I wouldn't. death. <laughs> uh, it especially grows in Georgia, which is obviously where the band are from. And it's, it's a vine that covers everything and suffocates the plants surrounding it of any light, killing them it just overtakes whole areas and that's what you can see on the arc, is a whole area take, overtaken by kudzu it's quite dark it's very southern so it potentially plays into that southern gothic vibe that they toy with and we've talked about and later becomes a bigger part of their kind of
0: whole deal um, i've heard that area is a uh, a tourist attraction for the mem- uh, for fans now is, is that, that right the back cover y- you're thinking of the back yeah, cover. Right. Yes. What, okay. Which is a, so, it's like a bridge or something. It's a ah. large trestle
2: that was built as part of the old Georgia Railroad in Athens. And yeah, it became a tourist destination off the back of this album, the success of R.E.M. Mm. It's called the Murmur Trestle. Um, mm-hmm. In 2020, it had to be demolished because it was finally just too old and dangerous to keep up. But even that—that that was that was after it had been saved multiple times by campaigns and council votes and all of that. But it's so famous and beloved that they're gonna build a replica of it in its place. Right. So just yeah, they're just gonna replace Who's it. Who's gonna fund one. that? <laughs> I don't know. REM, I guess. I say, Maybe like, I can't imagine like Maybe the local
0: council council's gonna <laughs> pay for that. Can can I ask uh, one of the more stupid questions I've ever asked in the podcast? Yeah, of course. Was it called the Murmur Trestle and that and then they named the album after no. the Murmur Trestle? No. no okay. No, good. No. It's
2: called the Murmur Trestle these days. <laughs> okay. Um the 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 front cover being very southern is is quite interesting to me because the the band are marketed at this point as a very southern band okay um and I think that's that's like that part of that bid that we talked about to break the band market by market like state by state so they they start with hometown stuff on the first album and they play into that southern image because it's also exotic to kind of other parts of the u s and USA. then there's a second like album called.
1: New York City. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, You've you've heard the second album. Great.
2: Um, It is interesting, though, because it got to the point where record record executives were, like, they didn't want to put that abstract image on the front cover, but they agreed to because it was such a southern image. They were, like, playing up the regionality of the band. And I think it's interesting you say New York City because I think in those very early days of alternative rock or post-punk or new wave or whatever you want to call it, that image or being a southern band or, uh, or something like that, it, it represented something very different to being from New York City. That's a very different image to the other like post-punk rock bands that were kind of coming out at the time. You know, New York's kind of a cultural hub in that respect. Um, the title is interesting. It's not named after the Trestle. The Murmur Trestle. Um, it's not named after the Murmur Trestle. The Murmur Trestle's named after Murmur.
1: Is it... Can I throw out a guess?
2: Yeah, go on.
1: Is it about hearts? Heart, heart murmur. Oh, expand on that. Well, because you get heart murmur, don't you? Because I don't mm, know if that's right, spelled the way that the heart version. What would that have version... to do with the album? I don't know. So I no, nothing. Is okay, it... Great. <laughs> okay. Well, is it about Is it about the way he sings? Interesting. That's, uh,
2: that's, that's my guess. Or, that is... Then why didn't
1: they call it mumble?
2: Well, because. So, so I think it implies like the beginning of something. You know, you get a little murmur of something, something rising up from the deep. I've never um,
1: known the word
0: "murmur" to mean the beginning of something. You, you, I, yeah, I know what yeah, you mean you like kind it, of do. There's like a crowd. There'd be a lot of murmur yeah. that will evolve into like a cheer, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of. Thing. And, or yeah, I get
2: it. But you're right. I think it gets ahead of the wider music press talking about Michael Stipe's indecipherable vocals. There was a suggestion that it would be reco- it would be called the return of mumbles. Uh, which I think was actually a joke from the press. So this is kind of an acknowledgement of that. I saw a quote from Peter Buck. um, uh, REO Speedwagon were one of the most popular rock bands in the US in 1983. And Peter Buck suggested that they were going to call the album R.E.M. Speedwagon and sell (laughs) two million copies just by people mistaking it for for a different band. (laughs) Um, uh, Ultimately... I love this quote so much. Ultimately, they settled on "murmur" because, as the band said, it was one of the seven easiest words to say in the English language. Yeah, murmur. They did not elaborate on what the other six were. They just—they just, they said it's one of the seven easiest words to say in the English language. Seven specific, isn't it? Murmur. Hmm. <laughs> murmur. Dada. I love that kind of bullshit. Uh-huh. Uh, mysterious band. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just just one of the seven easiest words to say in the English language. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, uh, we talked about how part of the success of Chronic Town was the air of mystery that the band has, like that quote where about the English language. Uh, and that comes from their image, which I don't think you guys have really reckoned with yet. We'll find some time to do that. Um it's to do with how they were in interviews. You know, they were very private people. But also, of course, Michael Stipe's lyrics. Lucas, something interesting, I think, has happened over the course of the beginning of this season so far. Your classic stance, classic, Lucas. If you're an action figure, it, it would come like you'd pull your string and you'd say something like this, uh, which is don't care about lyrics, listen to the vocals as though it's just another instrument. The, the example of that being you'd rather listen to Sigurd Ross than Bob Dylan. Um, on the first episode of this season, you got quite excited because Michael Stipe, at least initially, has the same view as you. Uh, vocals as musical composition, they add texture. If you don't understand what's being said, that's absolutely fine. And then when we got to Chronic Town, uh, one of the things that you criticised it for was not being able to hear the lyrics. Uh, and I'm, I'm desperate for you to speak on that.
1: Well, I, I guess it's like... I want to have a I'll, what is Adam is I want to have my cake and eat it too. Okay, which great. is that <laughs> I want to be able to hear enough that I can pick up on some kind of hook, yep. but I don't want to have to pay attention to all of it to get it. Do you know what I mean?
2: Okay, right. So- <laughs> you would like a middle ground, so the Mannix. Yes, that's right. Whatever, Mannix. Yes, I mean there is a lot you
1: should pay attention to with the Mannix if you want to really get you know the best out of it. It's probably why my it's probably why my probably why my season was Muse wasn't it because you can hear plenty
2: of lyrics but also they're largely uh, not not consequential <laughs> yeah yeah that's true that's true but well, what about the vocals on on murmur then they seem more audible to me more um, they are maudu- they audible. are audible yeah. yeah good okay, yeah. <laughs> good
1: um, they are still like quite like a texture they're like an instrument one or in two is mm-hmm. wild are wild and also um.
0: <laughs> TB,
1: tbh a lot of songs have about eight lines
2: yeah 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 there's there's quite a bit of repetition
1: so he's also not exactly packing in the lyrics in a nicky wilde-esque way or anything like that there's a lot of repeats not lauren hill no yeah Yeah. there's a lot of
2: very basic i mean still a lot of them i didn't get until i read them yeah i mean that's the thing i think uh, I, I think that the, the vocals, if you, even if you're not focusing on lyrics, I think the vocals are a bit more successful here. Yes. Because I think on Chronic Town, uh, we were talking about how some of them are quite monotonous or whatever, and that kind of turned you off a little bit. Whereas here, I think the vocal melodies are much more dynamic and they're much more engaging. There's still some quite horizontal Oh, melodies. yeah, there's some bits. There's, there's, some, there's some drone, bits. for sure. The other thing is, though, even if you can hear what he's saying... Can you understand what he's saying? There's kind of two levels to it. Even if you know it word for word, yeah. do you really know what he's talking about?
0: So a couple of them I looked up the lyrics, and I'm convinced that even those lyric sites um just guess what he was saying. But but on the other hand of that on the other hand of that, and what and if I was on a planet, the planet there's no planet <laughs> on there's one no hand planet. uh the other side of that is that it is just uh, nonsense. Sure. Um. So it's it's very interesting having a season where, like we did on Chronic Town, where we just kind of kind of go. It might maybe he's kind of the vibe is this, and this is the thing. Like this season, I feel is going to be very much. I'm going to get have to get used to enjoying the vibe of uh, the song rather than specifics like in terms of lyric or what he's saying or anything like that. Because, yeah, as Luca said as well, a whole lot of copy and paste on this.
2: There have been times where you have maybe not rated a song going into an episode and then my explanation of what it's about and the clever way that they've written it has kind of improved your notion of the song and you've come away liking it a little bit more or disliking it a little bit more, but whichever way it's changed your opinion on the song. I don't think you're going to get that this season. This season, you're on your own. There's no hand-holding from me on this season. Uh, you're going to have to come in and, and with your own interpretations and stuff. There's a lot of mystery surrounding these lyrics. Um, I like when you hold my hand. Well, if you cross the street, well, then yeah, we'll hold hands. Yeah, Could absolutely. you hold me from behind? I don't really want to, but I will if it makes like, you feel like safe, ghost. I, yeah, okay. And also there's play. Um, <laughs> Michael Stipe. <laughs> Michael Stipe has, has this to say about the, the essence of mystery. Um, and this is just how Michael Stipe talks, by the way. Any wife or husband, any lover, can tell you the importance of mystery, what a large part it plays in life, and how important it is to leave a little bit for people to work out for themselves. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Uh, adding to that mystery, Michael Stipe did not discuss his lyrics in interviews in the same way other artists did. Um, I like
0: that. I'd, I'd ha- I don't like it when interview were like, this song... This song's about this, and when I when I'm saying that, what I'm actually saying, and it's really clever. Is that I'm saying this? Um, yes. I You're think doing the Matt, Bellem- a- Matt Bellamy, Matt Bellamy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, a bit. Right, so did talk whose about lyrics
2: that? improve once he's explained them, as we found on Will of the People? Mm, yeah, yeah,
0: because he
1: writes <laughs> some shit. He writes some shit lyrics, and then he does an interview, and you go, "You're reasonably well spoken. Write lyrics <laughs> that are more. Think about just give <laughs> a bit more thought into them. Because maybe. he's he's
0: he's putting thought to them after he's written them. I, I'm convinced, and he's like, "Oh, actually, yeah, that means enough. that, which is really clever."
2: That Um, is how a lot of songwriting works. I think R.E.M. doing that a lot.
0: In what way? Writing the lyrics, figuring out what they mean later. Are they even saying what they mean? Who knows? Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, as long as it sounds cool. Yeah. There's not not a lot of discussion from Michael on the lyrics, but I did
2: find something from Peter uh, Peter Buck describing it. Um, He said, we realised that we didn't want to be a straight narrative band that has stories in our songs that began and ended. You can put meaning in there. You can write a song about something without ever really referring to what you're writing about by using evocative phrases, by association of words that wouldn't normally associate, by repetition, by the power of the music itself and the melodies. You can get the feeling from that experience without ever actually referring to the experience itself. And I, I think that really does sum up. The thing that I love about Michael Stipe and his writing is that even when I don't understand what he is saying, I can feel what he is saying. Yes, yeah, so you know I mean? and this is where
1: because you have the ability to feel more than me, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I can't. I can't feel what you're saying. I'm just like, nah, no idea. And even when I read him, I'm like, still haven't got much, okay. mate. Apart from I can now, I can now know the word he's saying instead of just Hans me. I now know the word he's saying. We still the uh, to you. Yeah. the
0: uh, to, yes. to you. the to you. That's what we all say to obviously each other on Batman Day. Batman Day? Yeah. I still agree. I still so
1: much for it. It's just. I mean, we talked about it with the Manix season with collage lyrics, right? Mm-hmm. It's like collage lyrics, but turned up to 11.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. All of the Manix collage lyrics were around a central point, and it seems like these are all. Uh, the REM ones are disparate images
0: plucked from the ether of Michael Stipe's brain. Here's what here's my analogy. Uh the Mannix collage lyrics are like, you know, those big posters where you, if you look in really close, actually the squares are things from the movie and they make some sort of a big picture of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh But then REM have just uh, put it all on there, and it's like, oh, that maybe maybe that's a woman's face. I I think I can see a face. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) it
2: might be a boat. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: but I get like imagery from this. I don't know what it means. I've written down what you know, what I think. You know, well, this this is going to be my
2: central question for a few episodes. I think is does it have to mean anything if it feels like something? Yeah, I really like that when I can understand him. You, well yes true yeah. uh what i also think it means is that it's difficult to pick out any themes from this record in the way that we typically would did you did you guys manage what what did you guys make of it
0: a little bit i've got a few it kind of goes on for a four track period but I, I bet i could pull some shit out of my ass later and should we wait for the track goes... by track yeah yeah, bit? yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: I, I i think i've got one i think i've got one sort of Sort of central premise, I think, but it's all just from these disparate images that uh crept around the album. You know, it's it's. I get feelings and I get moods, but it's tricky to pick out tangible connective tissue. I think in the way that you would for something like how you would go like, oh, alienation of the modern world. That's what OK Computer is about, or the Holy Bible is about the, the horrors of humanity. Yeah, exactly. You you can't point at Murmur and go, I know what that album's about. I have.
1: No, no, sh- like they're, they're, even after reading them, this album may as well be sung in Hoplandic. Like mm-hmm. nothing. I've got nothing in almost all. I've got like a few lines from like, he's saying something there, but seldom It is just it's it's like I say it's all vibes. And guess what? I'm not uh, all vibes. And so even when I'm reading them, I'm like, don't know what that means. Just saying a load of
2: words. He's just saying a load of stuff. From your descriptions over the years of how you listen to music, and you know, I put, you know, you put on background music to chill when you're working, or you'll vibe to Cigar Ross over Bob Dylan. That's all vibes. That, that like, how, your, your description of Michael Stipe's lyrics there, or the lyrics on Murmur, how does that make you feel about the album?
1: Well, the thing is, it's that almost that thing of though, but because they they are lyrics sung in English, you know, with words. So. Maybe it changes the expectations slightly that I should at least be able to at least parse something from them, right? Because even when I'm not a lyrics guy, right, take the first few Mannix albums before you said, go and read the lyrics, because I intentionally was not reading the lyrics. There's a couple of songs that I was like, oh, but this is about that, right? Like, there's enough that I can go. It's no real surprise what Nat West, Barclays, Midlands, Lloyds is about, right? And so... Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And then these, but then these, I'm just like it's just it's it's nothing it's about nothing i have no idea what any of these songs are about is it important to you that a song be about something no but not at all but what i mean it's in, 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 in the purpose of discussions for this podcast though it then makes it like
2: well that's one fewer things that i can bring almost you know what i mean because yeah sure so it changes the way that we do the podcast maybe but it shouldn't necessarily change the way you feel about the album right no not really no the the songs I, i'm still mostly drawn to does the do i vibe with the actual
1: sound of the song the so song. you are
2: vibes <laughs> oh, shit
1: Do I mostly <laughs> click with the Steve, sound we of We've got him Steve
0: <laughs> Hey don't drag me into this
2: Hello Just a quick bit before this week's episode To let you know that we have a Patreon You can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here And you want more of it You probably already knew that We don't stop going on about it What you didn't know Is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it and then for seven days you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly and during any month as part of that Biggest Mates tier you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday you'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just The Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord, where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to Patreon.com/Whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. Something Michael Stipe did say about lyrics, Uh, actually he didn't say about lyrics, Uh, he kind of said about writing in general, I think he said, if you want to talk about politics, then you should do it somewhere other than the stage. Um, And I think this is something that I think came out of their wish to keep the music timeless. Uh, And I do think the album sounds kind of timeless. It is difficult place in a timeline. If you told me the album was from the 90s, I would believe you. If you told me it was from the 60s, I would believe you. It has that kind of classic, timeless feel they were going for. You, you guys I wouldn't believe not. you if you said it was from 2017. I might. I might yeah, believe yeah, it I was might. 2017. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I, 2018, no way. Absolutely not believe it's from 1983. Or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah,
2: yeah. Where, where did you think it was from? Before? After? The 90s. I
1: knew, oh, I, knew really? it, I knew
0: it wasn't, but that but like yeah, we I talked forgot. About this, you think about the REM yeah. and I still just think of the nineties. Yeah. 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 Um, but but I forget this is an early eight like you're talking four years prior, we were in the seventies. This doesn't mm-hmm. sound this doesn't sound like that. No,
2: it doesn't sound like that. But then it doesn't sound like the eighties. So like you, you wouldn't you point at this yeah. and go, hey, that's a classic seventies record because it was released in the eighties.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Guys,
2: rock music didn't sound like this. Uh, no, well, it, it used to. Uh, ages ago, in the 60s, there were bits and pieces that sound like this. And I think that's what they're pulling from. And that's that timeless feel that they're, yeah. that they're going for. I mean, what okay? What does the album, what, what does it sound like? What does the album sound like?
1: It sounds like, and I'm going to sound like I'm damning them with faint praise and, I'm, I'm, and I still do worry for the season to come because you've said they kind of find their sound and stick to it. But it sounds like rock music. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't really put a subgenre. I can't really put like a load of modifiers on it.
0: They just sound like a band. Do you know what I mean? I dunno. I think this sounds a lot um darker than I expected, despite it being a lot more clean and shiny, uh than Chronic Town because more money. Um and it's an album. But it it's got a tinge of sadness and a tinge of darkness to it, despite some of them get a bo Get it a bit I turned to Vic Reeves. Um Despite some of the things like that, uh, but it's actually it's a bit. I want I want to say gothic in a way, like it sounds dark. Am I am there's I wrong? Am I it. yeah? But there's, it, but there's it,
2: darkness too. I I think a lot of the spikiness has gone. I think it's a slower and softer sound than the yeah. EP. Um, I think the the, the the punk ethos, the punk ethos is still there. The sound appears less consistently. Uh, on the album, um, you know, like, like like I said, they spent a lot of time with acoustic guitars in the recording process. One song has four people playing an acoustic guitar at the same time. It's um, so Big Bottom by Spinal Tap, but it's just everyone on acoustic guitars. Exactly. But what what's interesting is is I think this sounds different to the EP. But the thing that Lucas you've said both times is it sounds like REM.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I think his the, the the drum patterns are very similar to what they do a lot later. He's got he's got his vocal inflections now, so we're we're used to how Michael Stipe sounds, right? So I think mm. it's very hard to pull those away. It's got the jangly guitars in it. Um, I think what this album sounds like is uh, very similar to itself. There's a lot of songs that sound similar. Um, yes, definitely. So therefore, for me, some highlights are when it it does stray away from that um also agree. so that was an interesting thing to go into
1: i guess the difference is and we keep bringing this comparison to the manic season which is interesting but i guess they are the most close comparison i guess if we're going to be like if we're going to do anything um like first album glam rock right and like stuff like that and then they go like heavy and then they do this bleak and whereas this sounds like what i imagine rem sounds like when we get to 1997 For the most part, it sounds like REM, and so I don't know. I can't help but have a little bit of like, do something. Do you know what I mean? Do, and I know it's hard to take that away from the fact that this was doing something because this is 1983. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's hard for me in 2020, 2023, 2023 to to not hear it and go, do something. No, do something different.
2: I mean, you. You know, you've said two dates there, and it is important to remember they are forty years apart. This is a forty-year-old album. Fucking mad! Because
1: I think of a forty-year-old
2: album, and I think of like Abbey Road, Deep Purple. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is only thirteen years after Abbey Road, isn't it? It's fucking um, mental. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's an old album, and so you have. 40 years of music that has come out after this, and some of it sounds a bit like this. And it's that thing of, but it doesn't sound so old that it sounds like classic rock,
1: you know? It sounds like things that followed because things followed it. And so it sounds somewhat quaint, but not
2: classic, if you know what I mean? But this followed. Let, let, let's let's be very distinct about this. This is after. This is post classic rock. Classic That's rock, sixties mean. and seventies. That's what I mean. But because because yeah. it's not
1: quite old enough to be classic rock.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, they were deliberately trying to buck the trends of classic. Peter rock, buck like I just trench. said like, n- Yeah, exactly. No, no rock cliches. No guitar solos. You know, no synthesizers. They were trying to get rid of all of the classic rock cliches. You know, um, I I just I think I think there's a huge difference between this and well, okay. I'm going to delete the word huge from, from that. I think there's a difference yeah. between this and the EP.
0: Yeah, I think know? there is. But, but I think that's mainly in production, potentially. No, I don't think so. No, I've instantly disagreed with myself. Yeah, the songwriting's yeah. different. different. Yeah, it's dark. It well, you say it that, is. but
1: then Radio Free Europe is on both. Nope. It's not, but go on. What? <laughs> oh, was it? Okay, it was, like a, it was a single or something, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's from that era. Yeah. Yeah. And Radio Free Europe doesn't sound out of place on this album.
0: No, uh, but that's they've re-recorded they... it though, and they've slowed it yeah, down. Saying, yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 right down. And that's what I'm saying. There's a there's a lot on this on this album that if you were coming to it straight from the EP, you'd go. They've slowed everything down. They're slower. Everything is softer. There's none of that hard. Punk edge, or not as much as that kind of harder edge that we saw on Chronic Town. There's not as much not as much of that fizzy energy, you know, yeah. that we had on yeah, Chronic yeah. Town. This is a much more laid back, contemplative, uh, darker kind of sound from the band, which is interesting because usually we don't have anything to really compare the first album to. Do you know what I mean? If 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 you yeah. look at uh, sort of like the difference between. Um, I know we didn't cover it, but I have heard it. If you listen to the difference between the Muse EP and Showbiz, or you listen to the difference between uh, the Radiohead EP and Pablo Honey, there's almost no difference at all. Mm. So to have that growth just from EP to first album, and for a lot of people this would have been their first experience of R.E.M., I think this is... We're looking at a much different band than we were when we were looking at Chronic Town, I think. Yeah
0: it, yeah, it does sound different.
1: It does. Also, you guys are just more well-versed in spotting the minutiae than me, so I still
2: hear it and go, well, it sounds
1: really like the EP
2: because I'm, you know, a pleb. Fair. But, I mean, you have Radio, Radio Free Europe and you have Sitting Still. I think those are very much like the EP. But then you also have Perfect Circle and you have We Walk. And, yes, you have Nine-Nine, but you also have Talk About The Passion and shaking through and these are all kind of that's four groups of moods there already across a a 12-track album Mm. um and i suppose it is it's it's kind of it's difficult to illustrate how different it sounded at the time other than just by saying trust me bro uh (laughs) because we weren't around at the time and you guys maybe don't have like a huge handle on the other music that was being released but it was different enough that people noticed it's even like mixed differently to how records were mixed back then. Um, It just all around just sounded different. And I I think the producers, Don Dixon and Mitch Easter, they get a bit salty uh, at the suggestion that that it was a mistake. Um, Like uh, a lot of people have said, Oh, well it's because they didn't know what they were doing. Um, uh, Peter Buck said, it sounds like a record mixed by people who don't know how to mix records, Uh, but they did. And it was a deliberate choice on their part and the band's part. There's not, I mean, we're going to talk about minutiae here. There's not loads of stereo separation. You get kind of an amalgam of sound. It's like a mixture. It's, it's rather than very cleanly separated parts that had become very fashionable. Vocals, like, obviously mixed quite low. The bass is a little higher than you would normally expect it to be. Apart um, from the
0: drums, there's, there's at least one song where I've got hi-hat just in the left cup and snare drum in the... In the- right yeah the other yeah there's there's some there's um, some other examples of it but, but otherwise it's very mush isn't it
2: it is and but like that's the deliberate sort mm-hmm. of they're chasing a vibe there rather than strictly like we want every part to be like perfectly audible or whatever mm-hmm. but I, I think there's a lot of variety on this record i think to kind of look at all 12 tracks and go just sounds like rock music is probably an oversimplification that we're going to dive into over the course of these episodes. Because I think there's bits of punk and there's bits of post-punk, and some of it is a bit avant-garde, but also some of it sounds like classic 60s pop, and there's bits of folk in there, and there's big dollops of country music in there, and there's a bit of, like, uh, like southern rock in there, you know? You've just described so many genres that I'm not familiar with. So Right, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, it makes it harder for me. You know, obviously, compared to, right, to really dumb things down, compared to the difference between OK Computer and Kid A, right? Where I'm like, wow, this sounds really different to the last thing we covered. That's, you know, it's like such a more dramatic difference. So Mm. for me, I think I'm going to definitely struggle with the the more minutiae difference, you know, or the more minutiae things that they're doing compared to, holy shit, they've made an album full of synths now.
2: That's what I'm here for. We ha- we don't settle on our scores until we're done with all the context and the deep dive.
1: Also, just a, a, a thing I've noticed as well is, and it's probably just because, the even though a lot of the uh, song titles are basically the word that is said a lot in the chorus, uh, yeah. because because the lyrics are so inaudible, I've really struggled, I've realised, I've really struggled to know the names of these songs. I think just because they're not, you know what I mean? There's not that thing of like, now West Barclays, Midlands, Lloyd. That's what this song's called. I remember that because that's the name of the song. Do you know what I mean? Oh, no, you serious. just
2: said there was loads of that because all of the titles are the words that were no, in the song. But, but I, yet, <laughs> I, no, but I'm
1: saying. And yet, I know what I'm saying. But and yet, I'm not picking up on that. And I think it might be just because it's so mumbley. right? Because right? a lot of those words, I didn't know the, the, the thing until I read the lyrics. Gotcha. Right. Because I can't right, I'm actually on board. pick it up. You know? I'm not actually hearing yeah, yeah. that they're saying the, that
2: phrase or that word or whatever because it's so inaudible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we'll we'll pick up bits and pieces. I haven't looked up the lyrics as a, studi- uh, again, as a tradition, so, as a tradition, as we always do on this podcast. So we'll see. I'm going to broadly assume that you hadn't heard this album uh, before covering it for this podcast. I'd heard either of you. I'd heard one song. It was Radio Free Europe, and it was from the EP. <laughs> Yeah, And it was not from the EP. And it's been re-recorded yeah. as well. So you yeah. hadn't heard that version. I don't think I've heard a single one. Steve, any, any of this recognisable to you? No, none of it. Not even Not even. Your, your talk about the passion?
0: Not even that. Not Not even talk about the passion, no. Not even talk about the passion. I okay. did recognise I Radio had, 3 Europe uh, because it was on the EP, but not on the EP. But wasn't it wasn't on a different the EP, version of It It was
2: re-recorded. You hadn't heard this version. It was a, it was yeah, a different yeah. version of it,
0: yeah. I'd obviously heard it. Uh,
2: not paid it as much attention... Uh, as we pay it for these, uh, as discussed, not the album I started with for them. I probably this is just for me, and the listeners, guys. I probably heard around the sun before I heard this in full. Came to it very late. I think I did "Life's a Rich Pageant" and "Document" before hearing this. Does this mean anything to you? Is this landing well for you? I guys, recognize or? the
1: recognize the names. Yeah, I like cool, they've cool. got an album called "Document." They do. Yeah, that's quite funny. <laughs> uh,
2: so it was I, it was a surprise to me how. Uh, soft and nuanced uh, it was when I first heard it because I think you expect bands to get softer as they go yeah. and Life's Rich Pageant and Document are much harder, kind of more full, fully fledged rock albums I know Lucas is saying this sounds like rock music there's bunches of stuff on this album that I assure you doesn't really sound like rock music they have a couple of albums that sound like fucking rock music Um before we dive into the track by track, there are a couple of things that might, might just be worth putting out there. Uh, I gave you your playlists. I also made you a second one, if you wanted to do a little experiment. Lucas, you didn't even request it, so I'm, I'm no longer talking to you. I'm just talking to Steve. Steve, you did. With, yeah. uh, it was just a bit of an experiment. Yeah. Uh, do you want to describe what I, what I did, just the pure mechanics of it initially?
0: Well, first of all, it was all your music, and then I was like, this, was all hasn't, my got anything, music. this hasn't got anything to do with... And he went, oh, sorry, yeah. You Did know. you like it, though? Did you look at the pictures I sent? Yeah, well? yeah, I noticed that all, the album artwork <laughs> yeah. was just just full groin shots. And then full I said, can I have anything RVM related? And you went, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, here's Murmur like, yeah, 2. Murmur yeah, 2, you called it. Um, yeah. Basically, after, after Perfect Circle, it's two minutes silence. That's and right. And then it carries on. At the halfway um, point,
2: between, between yeah. Perfect Circle and, and Catapult. Yeah. What was I doing there, Lucas? What was I doing there?
1: That's a version, that's what it sounded like on vinyl or something. There's, some, there's, there's another version, something.
2: Yeah, I, I love the start of, of that sentence because he said, that's a version. Lucas, it was the version. We are pre-CD. Oh, yeah. We are oh not. Oh, my God. Are we, we are not pre-invention of CD. But, like, pre-mainstream but, uh, CD's. This came out before CD was manufactured and available in the US. That doesn't happen until Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA in 1984, which is a year after this. And we're also way before the popularisation of CD. It doesn't start outselling vinyl and cassette for another decade. So the way that I set up that playlist with some time to turn over the sides um, would have been initially experienced by most people certainly at the time of the release uh, a, little, a little break in the middle to change sides in this case it's called Side 1 and Side 2 um, it's usually A and B but they went with 1 and 2 uh, I, I did it Steve any different I think it felt interesting
0: Yeah, because it's two different albums yeah right? exactly yes um, and what, did they actually label them 1 and 2 for this case yeah. right they did yeah. Okay, because I remember you saying that they potentially hadn't labelled some albums that, and therefore you didn't know. Or is that just for Chronic Town? That was just Chronic Town. It uh, yeah. got
2: mislabeled. They yeah. always name their sides something yeah. interesting. And in okay. this case, it's Side 1 and Side 2 instead of A and B. It's not interesting. <laughs> it's quite interesting. <laughs> I guess so. Um, it definitely makes you consider the two halves of the album.
0: Yeah, because it finishes. It finishes on, yeah. a, on a thing. And then it starts with a new thing. It starts with a new thing. And then uh, Side 2. It, it adds it adds a wrinkle to sequencing that I think doesn't
2: really exist anymore, which is you get two openers and two closers. That's interesting. Uh, isn't it? And you get a separation. That's between very them. interesting. Mm-hmm, Yeah. I now um, want to go
1: back to some classic albums that I am familiar with and know where the they, and know where they split and see what that sounds like. Because I would have never heard those albums.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's something all bands would have considered. Um, the other thing that you have to consider is that all artists, even in music that you probably listened to, um, will have been considering that in like the early nineties because CD wasn't the dominant format yet. They still would have been considering like how does this sound on the most dominant format of music sold, which is vinyl and cassette. You know, uh, gener- we, we've talked about it a lot. Generation Terrorist by Mount Street Preachers—they were considering the side splits, and we just never really talked about it.
0: Yeah, and that, and then now you have modern bands releasing vinyl to make a lot of money. Um, and there'll be four discs. Mm-hmm. There are discs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Four discs in there. They have got A, B, C, and D. And it's like three tracks. And then, and it just it breaks it up in such a way that it's just not worth it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're we're at we're at a point in 1983 where it's like you get one 12-inch bit of vinyl. You got side one. You got side two. Anything else is considered a double album. Obviously, yeah. You'd have two pieces of vinyl, and you've got. You've got one,
0: you've got an intermission, and then you've got the rest of the album. And then because bands aren't considering the split now, it sounds broken up more, doesn't it? It sounds that's, more broken That's up.
2: what we talked about when we talked about Lauren Hill and, and CD albums, yeah. and OK Computer is a definitive CD album. You can't break up OK Computer in a comfortable way. Yeah. They do it for you with Fit or Happier, but you, you can't break it up onto vinyl in a way that is
0: satisfying. But they simply must to make more money. They simply must, and I will buy all seven colours of yes, the four indeed. disc box set. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Why do some uh, albums now, when they release them on vinyl, why are they doing four sides? Like, they, it's not the space issue, is it? Like, clearly, because that's not been the
0: case. Steve's got his hand up. Steve knows. Because I want to say before Adam, is it to sell more uh, shit? Yeah, no, but it it will be higher quality because it's on uh, the the grooves will be better. Because you don't have to ram as much. Because they there. get, like, a cooler basis. They, they get a cooler basis, and the <laughs> grooves are, like, way better. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, yeah.
2: the more music you put on a side of vinyl, the less good it sounds. Go a step Is further. Them? One
1: piece One of vinyl side. every two tracks. One per side. Yep. You're uh, talking about singles, mate. Oh, fuck. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely now like to, I would like to go back to, like, I don't know. Abbey Road or something, like right? An album I am familiar with that would definitely obviously yes. have been considered for vinyl and go, where's the split? What's that sound like?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I've never really considered
1: um, that. That's an interesting, uh, yeah. interesting thought.
2: Uh, and and it, it, it did, honestly, I'm not fucking around, drastically changed my perception of this album. Because <laughs> like, you are like, oh, it's literally two halves. They've sequenced it to be six tracks followed by six tracks, uh, which I think is fascinating.
1: I'm going to assume that even if I had heard it, I don't think I would have had that resp- reaction because I'm me.
2: Yeah, let's assume. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good <laughs> assumption. <laughs> the other thing, there's one more thing, and then we'll get into the track by track. I don't know if you knew this or if it occurred to you. You might have sat there and gone, bloody hell, it's this. Uh, or if it will even make any sense to you. I might say this and you'll go like, what? Why? Uh, but it's worth pointing out now this is one of the highest regarded debut albums of all time what why there you go okay so let's start <laughs> with side one and we'll just let that we'll let us mull over that over the course of the next 12 tracks we'll start with side one track one which is called radio free europe oh. Radio Free Europe, the opener of the album, also the first single from the album. So they released Radio Free Europe as a single okay. twice. <laughs> um, <laughs> The the opening is um, that weird little fade up thing is is a studio hum that is put back through the bass guitar, uh, which creates an interesting and weird sound to open your album with. I think immediately giving you the idea that you're listening to something that is kind of different, uh, which is a funny observation to have on this podcast because it, this is the one thing that we've heard before. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Th- this yeah. this this was their first single recorded for Hip Tone. It's re recorded here. It's cleaner. Steve, mm-hmm. I think you would probably agree with that. Yeah. It's slightly slower. Yeah, um, I think it's a great opener for the album. I think they've retained the energy of it. It has a weirdness to it, sounds very unique, sets up the indecipherable lyrics thing
0: very quickly and clearly.
2: Finally, me, hum me your friend Yep. Ro- yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's it. You do so many schmurr noises when you do that. It's always <laughs> shmur. It's because it's from The Sims, I think. Oh my (laughs) God, it's like a
2: Sim. Um, Maybe the least decipherable thing on the record. Uh, And we have often said that records' perceptions can come down to the first few tracks. I think there are more decipherable things on this record, but everyone goes, oh, you can't hear anything on this record. Potentially because Radio Free Europe is the first thing.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, what, what were your guys' thoughts on this? It's a funny thing that at this point, because the way we do it in chronological order like this, and it's like, I know this one. So therefore, my perception now is Radio Free Europe is one of their biggest songs. It's one of their biggest uh, hits. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, it's their it's their big hit, Radio Free Europe, back in action. at this open, Of course, you can open the album with your biggest like <laughs> you song. Open You'd open every album hit. with your biggest hit, wouldn't you? Always open with the same song, like Yeah, the 1975. And then yeah, always yeah. end with Mammoth, Harmonica Nights. Um, always.
1: <laughs> wait, do the nineteen. What did the nineteen seventy five do? Do they always start their songs? The what?
2: the The first track of their album is always called the nineteen seventy five. Oh, didn't know that. That's interesting. But it's not the same song every time. No, they've just got a
1: bunch of pile. songs called the nineteen
0: seventy five. Yeah, that's annoying. Isn't it? Oh, irritating. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, I think I prefer the Chronic Town version. Discuss. There is no Chronic Town version, Steve. You've made a fool's error. <laughs> The other version that's around the Chronic Town, the Chronic Town era version. Yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> okay, yeah, so sure, we can call it that if you want. Yeah, I think this is closer to Chronic Town than
2: the single, but that's fine. yeah. So face? <laughs>
0: uh, I think, because it's more urgent and messier, and it doesn't have this. But this has those like extremely high frequency ride bells in this. <laughs> okay, yes, I uh, do know it, so it. that was a bit. Oh God! But apart from that, it's quite safe. What
2: I, what I will say, if you. If you're taking the song and just as a song and comparing it to the other song, mm. I think I probably prefer the hip tone version. You're right. More immediate, more urgent, more energetic. This one fits Murmur better.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't uh, put uh, the other one on. I yet. would it's agree with insane. that. Yeah, when I hear this, I definitely I'm, I still hear it and just go, why is it slow? It's dragging. Why it's not, is not quite it your slow? tempo, is it? Yeah, it's not quite my tempo because I'm used to the other speed now. And so now it sounds wrong. Like. It, that's just an unfortunate consequence of having already heard the other version of it. where now this version sounds wrong, regardless. It's all context, baby.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that's interesting because I obviously heard this version first. Yeah, like so now the other one sounds wrong to me. I'm like, oh, I don't like the fast version. So I think it's it's just it's just what you what what gets at you first, maybe. Yeah, what gets bedded in. Um, I, I I love the feel of the song, like in terms of the lyrics and what the song is about. So. The, These are lyrics that I think I just know because I think I would have looked them up. So me saying that they're indecipherable, or or even me telling you like, hey, no, it's easy to hear these lyrics. They're easy for me to hear because I have known them for fifteen years or whatever. Uh, But I definitely can't fucking hear them. Uh, If you can uh, get any of these,
0: it's 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 nonsense. Adam,
2: carry on. Decide yourself if radio is going to stay. Reason it could polish up the grey. Put that. Put that. Put that up your wall. That this isn't country at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spot on, uh, yeah. Calling out in transit, Calling Out in Transit, Radio Free Europe. Um, I, I did have a quick look at them just to kind of jog my memory because I thought, well, I know Radio Free Europe, so there's no harm there. They're the only lyrics that I looked up for this session, and I was delighted to find that there are basically as many versions of certain lines as there are lyric sites. Um right. I, I saw okay. I saw Radio Station written down as Ray Beam Station. Yeah. Um I saw Wheel of Fortunes leading us absurd written down as Deal of porch is Leading Us Absurd, which makes even less sense. <laughs> it's like TikTok auto generated uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is it really <laughs> is um Steve you alluded to this on the commentary actually because I think you've done a bit of homework but it's about or inspired by uh Radio Free Europe, <laughs> the, yeah. the the US-funded radio station that broadcasts in Europe and the Middle East and has sometimes been referred to as propaganda. Uh, that's what this song kind of explores. There's numerous, numerous references to you decide and defying the media instead of pushing palaces to fall, um, which I think is interesting, especially from a guy who said, uh, if you want to talk about politics, don't talk about it on stage.
0: That's very true, yeah. And again, it's free Europe, the radio station, not let's make Europe radio free. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a campaign
2: yeah. so that radio no longer broadcasts across all of Europe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually
1: do think that would be good though.
2: Yeah? You're not a big fan? No radio not waves big fan for of- the
1: entirety of Europe. No, everything's gotta be on copper, copper wire.
2: Uh the the song I oh man, I, I love the push and pull of this. The the very small but energetic verses and then the bigger choruses. I think this sounds more anthemic and and soaring uh than the other one. The other one sounded very like agitated. Um uh, Stipe in 2011, so he's looking back on it, said uh the other guys said I'd do something harmonically that made them go, whoa, because it was so advanced. I wonder if I tricked them by accident because I still have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, and it's the straight off the boat bit. Straight off the boat. Whatever it is he's doing <laughs> that. Yeah, that's it. Not what yeah. I did, but apparently that's very cool. And it does give that kind of soaring sort of feeling to the song, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. No, I really, I really like it. I think it's uh, there's a reason it's there their best biggest song. hit yeah, yeah it's the reason
2: that they close every show with it
0: yeah yeah absolutely yeah. but um yeah really good really good album opener shit on it then lucas
1: i'm not gonna shit on it i'm i'm not gonna sh- i'm not gonna shit on anything on this album but i'm no, also been, not you're gonna, gonna say it's fine but i'm also yeah, not, gonna, not gonna, gonna necessarily celebrate any of it, any of it either or, or <laughs> yeah, not gonna celebrate much God. of it either which is a very right, boring yeah. take but yeah it is also what i was worried would be my take uh in this particular song, I mean it also doesn 't help I've heard it already, so it's nothing like
2: it doesn't it's not new you know um that that original version um the Library of Congress added that original version to the national recording register you know that that uh thing that we've talked about radio you know, in preserves the oh yeah yeah, preserves, very special recordings, or whatever they said that it quote, established the pattern for later indie rock releases by breaking through on college radio in the face of mainstream radio's general indifference. So they are being credited with basically pioneering college rock, which becomes alternative rock. Um, And like alternative rock, as we know it, is basically rock music that is too odd to be in the mainstream. So... They also helped popularize rock that was too weird to be in the mainstream. And they are weird. I mean, these days it just means fuck all, right? These days it just means. I don't know what. It just means something that's not the mainstream rock, right? I haven't liked. The alternative to the rock that is played on the radio, for instance, or the mainstream radio. Although, like,
0: Muse have got it against them, and Muse are like
1: on Radio 1. Aren't
0: they? It's probably also it's alphabetical order, it's the first drop down menu. You can probably just yeah, click that some lazy when you're intern. It. <laughs> some lazy intern's yeah. just done
2: that. <laughs> um you know the, the the original song is I've said it's more obviously influenced by punk. But it's still it had that softer edge. I think they're just playing it up here, you know. Uh this has more of a melody, more of a pop feel. Uh yeah. It, it feels sharp and heavy, but it's but it's much more published and, and uh, polished and, and clean. That ethereality is completely gone, and it's replaced with something a bit more sort of like anthemic. Um,
0: Despite it being uh, slower, I'm convinced even in that clip you played at the beginning there, it speeds up tempo slightly, which goes against the whole there was no click track. But then he's a very good drummer, and I imagine that he's literally a human metronome. So maybe I'm hearing something wrong. Um,
2: I, I think maybe, maybe it just sped up. When you're feeling a yeah. song, you play it. It I sounds it was, to me like know, it speeds yeah. up. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is still... I was reading a lot about this song because a lot has been written about this specific song because it's such a little flashpoint in the history of like rock music in general as kind of almost the invention of a genre. Um, it is like looking back at the time now it's still quite hard to like categorize with the stuff that it's commingling with, and now it's just very obvious. It's indie rock. That's what it is, right? Yeah. But indie rock wasn't a thing. This is kind of the birth of it. Uh, I like it. It's very cool. Um, the second track, it's called Pilgrimage. though it's not even though it's not the chorus they just they they pull you back you know it's uh yeah or well, the bit that we ate right before we stopped yeah 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 that's technically not the chorus even though you think it would be um so th- this is the first song recorded for the album in that tryout session with mitch easter and don dixon uh and it does seem very apart from what they were doing before. I don't think you could imagine this on the Chronic Town EP, for no, instance. No, this, this does sound more
1: s- more different yes, yes,
2: indeed. It's much more different uh It opens with those kind of very distant echoey vocals, and then this kind of dark bass line uh, comes in that's mirrored on a piano, like kind of new sonic territory for REO at this point. A piano. It is, imagine. It is a piano, <laughs> isn't
1: it? I, I honestly couldn't tell. It had such a weird sound to it that I was like, is that just, like, the bass sounding weird?
2: That's, yeah, that that's the mixing thing I was talking about. Like, they're happy to let these instruments just coexist, and you go, like... Well, I get it. on some notes. It sounds like a piano, and on some, it sounds like the bass, and it just kind of sounds like an amalgamation of the two, which I think is really cool. Because most records would be like, "Hey, we've got bass and piano playing at the same time. Here's one in the left. Here's one in the right," you know. Whereas this is just like, "Oh, what is it? It's mysterious. You don't, you don't know. You can't put your finger on it." Um, and, and they use that trick that, that, that they they love. Even by this point, we, we are we are fully able to identify it. Tight verses that then just kind of open up into the chorus, and then shut down again. Um, very different bands, but we know that there's an inspiration here. We're just going to lay this thread a little bit now. Uh, the quiet, loud, tension and release that is used by Pixies and then Nirvana, very present here.
1: Oh, interesting, yeah, because but obviously a very different sound that Nirvana do, like, a gloomy, glum, depressing verse, and then it has this chorus that's, I mean, still gloomy and depressing, but it's, like, big and raw and shouty. Mm. Yeah, and this is absolutely. like the R.E.M. version of that, which is, yeah. yeah, sort of that.
2: It's kind kind of the other way, obviously. I mean, I'm being really pedantic here, but I think it's important to show where R.E.M.'s place in the kind of pantheon of rock and roll is that the Nirvana thing is the Nirvana version of the R.E.M. thing. Because, like, I mean, Kurt Cobain is like, an R.E.M. super fan R.E.M. were like his favourite act he's on he's on record as being like I don't understand how they do what they do and and all of that stuff um, I think uh, the singer of the Pixies uh, Johnny Pixie about being ve- Johnny Pixie has been very uh, effusive about the inspiration of R.E.M. on their sound um, and bits and pieces of their lyrics as well um, so I just think that's interesting it's a little interesting pin that you can just drop in 1983 yeah. or 1982 even Um that's the thing funny. is, though, why I say like the verses are tightened and then the chorus opens up, like we've just said, the the thing that you think is the chorus isn't even the chorus. Um, you get that anthemic staccato thing after a little while. The dum 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 da da dem Pilgrimage—that's the chorus. Yeah. Not the thing that we just heard, which is another trick that they like. They make you wait for choruses. They make you think you've heard a chorus, then they give you something even better. Yeah. <laughs> Le- legends. The chorus, yeah.
1: surely, is where it goes. Pilgrimage. Yeah. No, that's the pre-chorus. Take a t- oh, genius lyrics is wrong again. Then twats. Yeah, absolutely.
2: That's the pre-chorus. The chorus is the bit that goes. Dun, 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 but dun, that's like dun, 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 two and a half dun, minutes into dun, the song dun, dun, the first time you hear that. Exactly. They they make you wait for I've it. I've literally got it in my notes, that's the best bit of the song. Excellent. Well, put the chorus as the best bit. And it has all the
1: R's. It has some classic R E
0: M I in the background.
2: Ah E M. Mm. Oh, is that why they If you listen that? really closely, that's they're always they're saying, saying it. Yeah.
0: Like how Ed's always singing Ed, they're always their background vocals are always saying R-E-M.
1: When they're going Ah
2: uh, E M. Yeah, at the end you could just say the go yep.
1: That's the best bit when it does that half time dun 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 yeah. dun
2: which we've done Doesn't a thousand. Does it feel times. anthemic and
1: soaring? I think it sounds less, kind of like big. so. Though than the pilgrim, uh, that sounds like something you'd wave your arms to. And then when well, yeah, it, goes, that's it. it comes dun, back dun, down dun, a bit. Dun, 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 it's more like I don't know. I don't think that's more anthemic. Mm. I think that's less. Oh, that's interesting. Fair enough. It's pilgrim, look, I'm waving my arms. Pilgrim, uh, he's describing them. Okay, now And then, where's the whereas the where that bit is going, you'd like jump and go den man and you'd have a little jump. Oh, you'd, yeah, you'd have a pogo. That's the pogoing section. That's the
2: pogoing bit, yeah. Um, Everyone yeah. brings a pogo into the gig. Well it's, a <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare. Well it's a games. healthy safety nightmare. <laughs> so many deaths. So many weapons. Uh, uh, classic, classic sound as well. Ringing guitars, very tasteful and dramatic. Tom fills in the verses. The bass is another absolute standout. There's some classic bass <laughs> stuff there. Tell you what. Isn't he great? Isn't he good? Yeah. He's such a good bassist. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's see how I did. Uh, take a turn, take a fortune. That's what I've got. Uh, what about before that? What about before that? What about take before take a turn, take That's a fortune? That's the
0: first thing you hear. Oh, sorry,
2: I meant
1: the, in, the, in the chorus. Yeah. I do like yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah. got
0: a little teaser of what's to come.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you've, you realise that you've actually heard the chorus yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. You heard it in like this weird, dark kind of version of it. Uh, the Carmel clip... Two-headed cow, your hate, clipped and distant, your luck with pilgrimage, rest assured this will not last, take a turn for the worst, your hate, clipped and distant, your luck, a two-headed cow. Pilgrimage has gained momentum. Yeah, pretty much. I think I got 90%. I the first yeah. line. Which, Again,
1: well, now you maybe think that genius lyrics might be wrong, though. So he's well, made it. Uh, yeah, we do yeah. <laughs> I, I think he's
0: told
2: you never to use genius lyrics several times. <laughs> genius lyrics <laughs> <is> so poor. <laughs> I think AZ lyrics might have some of these, right? But, Ra- 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 they, they were closest on Radio Free Europe.
1: I like the user comments because it gives me things to think about instead of <laughs> yeah, having – because I, I, it doesn't come out of my own brain. So I need someone to give me a little nudge. And like Adam you used to give sometimes give Steve a little nudge. In the early days
2: you 've got to give him a little nudge now, in the right direction i need i need bow, a you know? I need a little genius lyric shaped nudge yeah for me the the lyrics that I hastily typed out as I was listening to it they give me a sense of travel, um, the word pilgrimage, you know a journey of great distance and involving great change you know there 's that line take a turn for the worst, rest assured it won 't last um, and then there 's a line that I really like which I think oh, is is speaking in tongues is worth a broken lip, um, which I think is a really nice turn of phrase. Uh, there's kind of a religious aspect to it, uh, but also maybe about speaking up for your truth despite the consequences. Speaking in tongues is worth a broken lip. Um, that's what I take from it. What did, what did you guys take
0: from it, if anything? I got that religious imagery thing. Um... The, That's the speaking in tongues, uh, obviously pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is that is like a, usually seen as a religious mm-hmm. thing. Um, it's a religious. Journey, you've obviously isn't got it? the two-headed cow thing, which I think uh, I saw something about that being a reference to a poem. But but when but for me, just the 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 vibe of that uh, cows are sacred in Hinduism. Brahma is a god who has many heads, so like therefore I'm getting all this kind of, and then pilgrimage, speaking in tongues, I'm getting all this. Religious kind of imagery, faith stuff coming through. Um, and you've got to have faith. You've you simply got to dun, 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 dun. dun. Um, and then it's just kind of the vibe, the vibe of that. Two, but two headed cow sticks out, doesn't it? Uh,
2: you are thinking of the poem Two Headed Calf yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's... By, by Laura Gilpin. Uh, I didn't read the poem. It's uh, a wonderful poem. Uh, let me see if I can find it and I will read it to you. Here we go. Two-headed calf. Tomorrow, when the farm boys find this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. But tonight he is alive and in the north field with his mother. It is a perfect summer evening, the moon rising over the orchard, the wind in the grass, and as he stares into the sky, there are twice as many stars as usual. Come on now.
0: I've heard that before, and yeah. that is something, isn't it? That has given me that chills. has something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely got that from it, the
2: Two-Headed Cow. There's, there's very few things that that reminds me of anymore. Um, uh, Michael Stipe said about the song, I still have no idea what that song is about.
0: Yeah. So interesting to you? That poem has really affected me. Oh, okay. Should we have a break? <laughs> That's
2: bizarre. <laughs> the only, only lyric, the hour. only
1: lyric for me that gave me anything was the "Speaking in tongues is worth a broken lip" because yeah, I, good I, I, line. I got the imagery of like, I guess it's almost like don't, don't, don't hold back on saying the thing that you believe or want to say or whatever, even if someone's going to punch you in the face because of it. Basically, yeah, mm. absolutely, absolutely. I actually think, I actually think sometimes you shouldn't say it because it's bad. You know, you shouldn't say horrible things and people might punch you in the face. It Doesn't have to be horrible. I know, but sometimes they're horrible, aren't they? But speaking in tongues is... But then... Uh, that's what, what if that, trans... that translates to, like, you know, some really hey, horrific views?
0: Hey, while we're here, Michael Stipe may as well be speaking in tongues to his album. It's maybe a yeah, reference to you, his, yeah, that's good. his mumbled lyrics. It could be it's speaking in tongues It's worth a broken lip. Um,
2: could, be, could be. Could be. Um Peter Buck said the song was, was was written at a suggestion of Jay Boberg, the head of IRS, to write some slower songs. Um, they had previously been a party band that wrote fast, energetic songs for people to dance to, and they had never considered writing slower songs. So they wrote this song, and then they wrote the next song, Laughing, and they wrote We Walk in the space of a week and realised, oh, yeah, we can write slow songs, and people will kind of deal with that. I think we should stop it there. Yeah, I agree. I've had enough. I've had I've had enough of you too. I'm fed let's up of it. Going. Now, let's keep going. Now, come on, Steve. Now, come on. No, he's always the big man. It's, he always wants to go out and go raving. It's nearly me. my. That's it's nearly my bedtime. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's my bedtime too. I'm feeling sleepy. Do you know what?
0: Yeah. Actually, let's let's split this up into nice, even episodes. <laughs>
2: I don't think they will be that even, but we will keep oh, it going. <laughs> so, anyway, but before we do any of that. Uh, I would like to do two things that involve our listeners. I would like to, one, dedicate this episode. And I would like to dedicate this episode to one of our biggest mate subscribers, Mental Jargon. This is your episode, Mental Jargon. Uh, enjoy it. Have a lovely time with it. Enjoy um, it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I like yeah, It's all yeah. bread. Yeah. One of our biggest mate subscribers over on Patreon. Thank you for subscribing this episode is yours while we're talking about listeners can i read an email a bloody yes we are about what a hundred years ahead of time so we don't have any rem <laughs> emails to read so it's mostly yeah. going to be about radiohead isn't it this is from laurel logan uh the subject uh line is so many new thoughts on the bends uh Hey guys, my name is Laurel. I just started listening to your podcast, The Radiohead Season, a few days ago and just finished part three of The Benz. Wow. I've been a huge Radiohead fan since I discovered them when I was 14, but I always regarded The Bends similarly to Pablo Honey and wasn't a fan. I did love Street Spirit though. First, I had no idea how creative and influential it was. I was born in 2002 and grew up hearing Coldplay on the radio and didn't discover Radiohead until Burn the Witch came out. I listened to their whole discography going backwards from a moon-shaped pool. All the music was so creative, emotional and weird, but when I hit the bends it sounded similar to a bunch of early 2000s rock I had heard all my life and it didn't stand out to me. I never processed that it sounded so similar because it was the inspiration since the music didn't really grab me in a new way like it did for the rest of their albums I never really paid attention to the lyrics and the context of it also I think a lot of the songs didn't sound blatantly depressed or ethereal like some of their later stuff so I didn't expect to get much emotion out of them lol you guys made me realise what I'd missed and I actually cried when I listened to it again so thanks for that looking forward to the rest of the podcast Laurel yeah it's interesting I suppose this is what we kind of always talk about it's interesting how the context of a record can just shift your perception of it and it's suddenly a completely different album
0: it's what it's all about
2: it's what it's all about baby so thank you uh laurel for emailing in and that brings us to the end of another episode thank you very much to everybody for listening our next episode is out next monday and we are going to continue to deeply dive into REM's debut album, Murmur. So come and join us for that. But before you do, come and let us know what you think of Murmur and what you think of anything that we've talked about today. Um, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Is Music Pod, TikTok at What Is Music. And if you want to send in something a little bit longer, maybe have us read out on the show like Laurel did, you can email us whatismusicpod What Is at gmail.com. Please do email us at literally any thoughts that you have because we do love hearing from you. If you liked what you heard here today and thought I'd like to hear more of that, head over to our Patreon page. It's all kinds of extra podcast shows. We're revisiting Manic Street Preachers. We're exploring all kinds of different artists, genres and eras to make themed playlists. There's bonus commentaries. There's music discussion episodes. There's ad-free episodes of this show, a really great Discord community, and so many bitmojis. Uh, You can head to (laughs) patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes for up to two podcast episodes every single week. And there are other ways that you can support us if you would like to. You could buy some of our merchandise. We've got some shiny new REM dice over at whatismusicpod.rebevel.com or you can send us a little one-off donation on coffee.com which is ko-fi.com slash whatismusic. The best way to support us however is just doing what you're doing which is listening to us. Uh, that's great, thank you for listening. You can also rate the show, subscribe to the show, share it with your REM loving friends or your music loving friends all of that stuff. Go back and listen to some of our old episodes if you'd like to. But for now, that about does it. Thanks again for listening. We will see you next week. But for now, it's the end of the episode as we know it. And I feel sleepy. I'll go sleep. Yeah, same.
0: I feel off my fucking head, mate. <laughs> Let's go, Raven.